Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Once you found Acts chapter 3 and that uh, 19th verse, if you'd be so kind as to stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word, and let's read down to the end of the chapter and see what God has to tell us this morning in regards to His Son, Jesus Christ, and God's love for us. So Acts chapter 3. Start in verse 19, and it reads like this. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many of us spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham... And in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Father, this morning you have already blessed our hearts. You've blessed our hearts through the singing of the praises to your name and the gospel message and music this morning. Now I ask this of you that we let those things that we have already experienced of you this morning guide our thoughts in hearing you as you speak to us through your word. Do that, Father, by making very little of me and very much of you as we hear from you this morning. This we pray in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It's interesting the words of that song that was just sung, the words of that song. If you'll notice, a lot of the words that were sung in that song about then comes the morning, leading up to the announcement of then comes the morning, there were several things mentioned. There were several things mentioned in each of those verses that leads right to what we were talking about last week in this passage. See, because we were talking about the fact that, that there's two things that, that God is, is leading these, these Israelites towards as they are standing there in that portico, as they've heard Peter preach about the guilt of what they have, have done, as, they, as they've come to understand that this Messiah that they've been looking for had come and they had hung him upon a cross and they had, they had killed him. And as, as Peter had heaped that guilt upon them, he, he, he started into... He started into not just saying you're guilty for it, but that there is something that needs to be done because of your guilt. There is something that needs to be done because of your guilt. And it says, I've presented to you the names of Jesus, who he was, who he was in each of those messianic terms to make you understand that he was the Messiah. I've presented that to you so that you would understand your part in, in the death of the Messiah. He says, but now you just don't need to know the names. You need to respond to the names of Jesus. And we started last week looking at how God uses things in our life to lead to this response. There's two things that he tells us there in that 19th verse that we are to do. The very first one was, was repent. And we started last week looking at, okay, how does God lead us to repentance? How does he bring us to the point of repentance? And this song this morning so beautifully illustrates last week's point. 
in the fact that the very first thing that God uses in our lives to bring us to repentance, to point us towards repentance to the truth of God's word, did you notice? Did you notice as she sung about the fact that there is coming this morning, it mentioned miracles that were done and things that happened in Jesus' life, stories that you had read in the Bible. It, it used the foundations of things from the Bible to point you towards the fact that there is this morning that is coming. The, these things have happened, yet there is something going to happen at the end. That's the same way God uses the Word in our lives to bring us to repentance. The stories in the Bible aren't simply there to fill up pages on paper. They're not there to, to give the author something to sell. They're not there so a publisher can publish a Bible and everybody have it in their home. The words are on the page so that you can hear the stories about who this God is and who His, His Messiah, our Messiah is, and this Jesus that is to come. And, and in hearing those stories about this Jesus and understanding the miracles that were worked as they have witnessed here at the temple, it should lead us to repentance through knowing God in His Word, the truth of God's Word. So the very first thing we looked at of five points, the very first point was the fact that God leads us to repentance through the truth of His Word. This morning, let's look at the second thing that God uses. The second thing that God uses in pointing us towards repentance and responding to that name of Jesus and repentance in our life. The second thing that He uses is sorrow. Sorrow over sin to bring us to repentance. Now listen to me closely. This is where you can lose the whole rest of the day. Listen closely. Being sorry over your sin is not repentance. Understand that. Sorrow over sin leads you to repentance, but being sorry for your sin is not repentance. See, everybody who winds up repenting of their sin is it sometimes sorrowful over their sin. But not everyone who is sorry for their sins <laughs> repents. You see, our world is full of people, full of people who are sorry for their sin. But our churches are not even half full of the people who have been led to repentance because of that sorrow. So you can be sorry over sin and not repent. The place that comes to greatest understanding, I think, is in the writings of Paul. Whenever he writes to the Corinthians over in 2 Corinthians, over in 2 Corinthians, he is writing to, to the Corinthian church in that seventh chapter. And in the seventh, seventh chapter of the 2 Corinthians, as he writes to them in the eighth verse, he says this to them For even if I have made you sorry with this letter, I do not regret it. Now understand. Paul went and visited churches and started churches and oftentimes never made it back to those churches, but would very often send letters to them as he heard about things going on in the church, as he heard about needs within the church. And he says, I have sent you an epistle. Uh, most cases, maybe he was talking about 1 Corinthians that he had written and sent to them. And now he's writing to them saying, for even if I made you sorry with the letter, uh, I don't regret it. I, I don't regret that you're sorry because of my first letter. He goes on to say, uh, though I did at one time, I, I did regret it. But he says, For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a, a while. You see, that's the thing about being sorry for your sin. When you're sorry for your sin, just for the sake of being sorry for your sin, it only lasts a little while. And you know what I mean. You know what I mean. You sin, you're sorry for it, and you find yourself weeks, days, sometimes hours later, 
right back in that same sin. And it's because you were only sorry for a little while. And he says to them, you know, I, I know that it made you sorry if, if only for a little while. But then notice what he says in verse 9. Now I rejoice. I rejoice. Not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. See, there's a difference between being sorry and repentant. He says, for you were made sorry in a godly manner, <laughs> that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. <laughs> Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world, that being sorrow for the sin itself, <laughs> produces death. See, it's interesting. It's interesting what Paul does here. He makes a distinction between being sorry for your sin and having this godly sorrow over your sin. Being sorry for your sin comes basically from the consequences of that sin in all reality. But godly sorrow comes from the fact that you have sinned against a holy, a loving God that we heard sung about this morning that hung His only begotten Son on the cross to die for your sins. You have sinned against this holy, loving God who gave His own Son to pay the debt for that sin. You see, there's a difference between sorry because you sinned and being sorry because you sinned against the holy God that crawled upon a tree with outstretched arms and died for you. There is a world of difference in being sorry for your sin and being sorry over who you sinned against. You see, it's our tendency to be sorry for our sin when we're caught. See, we're generally sorry for our sin when we're caught. It's not when we sin that we're sorry. It's when someone else finds out that we're sorry. Until someone else knows that we have sinned, we really have no sorrow over sin. But the minute our sin is brought into the light, suddenly we're the most sorrowful people you've ever met in all your life. <laughs> you see, but godly sorrow recognizes the fact that the one that you've sinned against already knows. Whether anybody else ever finds out, God already knows. And it goes even further than that. Not only does God know whether anybody else does, but the Bible says He loves me anyway. See, that's the part I don't get. That's the part I don't get. He knows. He knows whether I recognize it or not, whether I admit it or not, that I have sinned against Him, a holy God. And He loves me anyway. See, you don't have to know my sin. It makes no difference whether you know my sin. God knows my sin. What makes me sorrowful over my sin is not what you know about my sin. It's what God knows. See, that's a godly sorrow over sin. And because we have the knowledge or the truth from God's Word, that first way that He works in our heart, the truth of God's Word of who He is and what He has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ, we should have a godly sorrow over all of our sin. From the smallest of sins to the largest of sins, we should have the same godly sorrow. You see, it's 
it's evident. It's evident in the world we live in today that the sorrow over sin has all but disappeared. You only have to watch the news for a few minutes. You only have to watch the news for a few minutes to realize the sorrow over sin and even being caught in sin has all but disappeared. Even when sin's exposed, even when someone has sinned and there's some grievous sin exposed to the world, they find a way to explain it away as if it's no big deal. They find a way to, to make us believe that everybody's doing it. How could it be a sin? They, they find a way to sugarcoat it, as mom and dad would say, and make it palatable. See, the world no longer is sorry for the sin that's committed. They just find a way to explain it. And the little sheeple just eat it up and move right along with the program. See, I, I look at the world we live in. And realize the godly influence in that world is slowly, slowly disappearing. Why? Because there is no sorrow over sin. It's justified now some way among people. (laughs) But you know what I'm really ashamed of? Yes, I'm ashamed that the world has got to the place that, that sorrow over sin doesn't exist. But what I'm most ashamed of is that in our churches today, godly sorrow has also all but disappeared. Godly sorrow is almost all but gone from the pews of our churches today. The church looks and acts more like the world than it ever has in my generation. The the times of the altar, just being completely filled with the lost seeking a Savior, has all but gone. But you know what? The times of the altar being completely filled with his people asking for forgiveness of their sins is gone too. You want the altar full of people being uh, coming looking for Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior? Start with the church filling the altar asking for forgiveness of their sins. Why would the guy in the world want to be like you if you're not looking for forgiveness from the Father yourself? You see... That's what I'm ashamed of. Because to understand who God is and not feel the necessity to have a relationship of unbroken relationship with Him of no sin in it, it's hideous. It's why? You see, you have to understand this. Though the world may change, though the perception of the world may change of us, Though the acceptance of sin in the world may change, there's one thing that never changes. God. God never changes. We're to repent of our sin before a holy God. He tells us that. The moment that we sin, we're to recognize it, we're to go to Him and ask for forgiveness for that sin so that our relationship may be full. So, So God never changes. And as a matter of fact, the definition of sin never changes. The world may say, it's okay to to slaughter a baby in the womb now. That's good. No. God said it's murder. It's murder. The world may say, it's okay for two men or two women to get married. No. The rules have never changed. It's one man, one woman for life. The world may say, it's okay to do this. It's okay. No. God never changes. What was written, what was prophesied from the Word of God years ago applies today. And until the church takes that in and accepts that as truth, the church becomes more like the world. 
You see, God never changes. The definition of sin never changes. When it comes to a relationship with God and having eternal life, it never changes. Never has it changed. Even those, even those standing before Peter in the portico, in the temple, listening to Peter, come to God the same way we do. For years, for years, they had Day of Atonement. They had those sacrifices given. But you know what the Bible says about those sacrifices? You know why they did it yearly? It was not good for eternal life. It was a representative of that which was to come. That person that was to come, that sacrifice that was to show up one day and would die once for all. Until that time, the yearly day of atonement and the priest work in the temple was nothing but a covering of sin. It never washed it white as snow. And see, they came the exact same way we come. We come through Jesus Christ. The sacrifices offered on their behalf would not do away with sin. It would only cover it. Only trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior can wash your sins away. It's the only way. Thus affording you a relationship with God for all of eternal life. And it starts with repentance. It starts with the repentance, for it says godly repentance leads to salvation. But guess what? Repentance doesn't start with the godly repentance leading to salvation. It carries through salvation. Through salvation. Even we as his children still have a tendency in this fleshly body and this world to sin against a holy God. Be a great place for an amen. If you're not saying amen to that, you're lying because the Bible says that all have sinned. It comes short of the glory of God. And it doesn't say until the day that you find Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior and you'll sin no more. It doesn't say that. I know I have a relationship with Jesus Christ that one day will have me in a place called heaven because I am His. But I also realize daily I have to go and ask forgiveness for sin in my life. To say that I do not sin is to make God out a liar. So even in our lives, as, as His children, as His followers, we have to recognize the fact there will be those days we trip and fall over sin. But we also must recognize what God says in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to go on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. 1 John was written to the church. He says, church, if you will ask for forgiveness of sins, I, the holy God, will forgive you of those sins and will go on doing that as long as you come and ask. See, until the church of Jesus Christ deals with the sin in its life and repents, we cannot expect the world to deal with the sin in its life and repent. So God uses the truth of the word. God uses sorrow over sin, godly sorrow over sin. The third thing that God uses is, is His goodness, His goodness to bring us to repentance. God's good, isn't He? God is so good. God is so good. One of my favorite passages on His goodness is found in Romans. Romans chapter 2, a very short verse that I love to read when I question whether or not God is good. And it's Paul here writing to the Romans and he asks them this question in Romans chapter 2 verse 4. He says, Or do you despise the riches of His goodness? He is being capitalized, making us recognize that it is God. His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, 
not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Don't have time to preach a sermon on that passage this morning, but that passage will preach because if you really read into the passage and think about it for just a minute, it's saying in sort of an offhanded way as you examine the goodness of God in your life that why would you bother to beg God for goodness in your life if you're not willing to come to Him in repentance? What it's saying is we want all the good things from God. We just don't want to deal with the bad things in our life to get it. And Paul says to them, he says, do you not understand? Do you not understand? Do you not look forward to? Do you not recognize that in in the riches of God there is this goodness, this forbearance, this long-suffering? And do you not recognize that even those things present in your life should point you towards repentance? Should point you... Towards repentance. Think about it. God has this common grace, as it's called. This common grace in in our lives. And and that common grace should point us to God who desires to have this relationship with us. Whether you're saved or whether you're lost, there's common grace. See, whether you're righteous or whether you're unrighteous, there's common grace. (laughs) Whether you come to church or whether you go fishing there's common grace god shows grace to all of us how, how do we know that matthew 5 45 says for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust see the goodness of god falls on everyone falls on everyone for a reason not that everyone has the same measure of goodness we realize that But we realize God's goodness falls on us all. If it falls on us all, what is the reason? Just the grace of God shows all of mankind through his creation that there is a God. There is a God that loves them. Think about how he could have made the world. Everything could have been brown. Everything could have been black. There could have been no day, no night. There there could have been no fields full of food. There could have been a thousand different scenarios. Yet God, God has made the earth the way he wants it, that shows forth his his goodness to all in the world with the purpose, the sole purpose of appointing him towards him. See, the, the earth has been made beautiful and bountiful as the terms used at creation. He did not limit the beauty and the bounty of the earth to those who call themselves Christians. He allows everyone to reap the benefits of his creation. But think about the grace, the goodness that God showed personally in your life. See, because it doesn't really matter to us personally what he does for everyone. What has he done for you? And see, when I think about his goodness... I think about why would God, why would God choose me to die for on a cross? Well, when I think about God's goodness that I see his blessing on my life, I, I wonder why, why would he use me to be a spokesperson for his glory? Why? Why would God bless me through all the seasons of my life, those times I'm on the mountaintop with him or in the valley when I feel all alone? Why? When I look at God's goodness, my question is not, why everyone? My question is, why me? Why me? 
You see, he throws out those blessings, those, those abundant blessings upon my life that I might know that he is God, whether saved or unsaved. Why? Because he's leading to repentance. All I can say is that God's grace is good all the time, and all the time God is good. All the time God is good. It's time for God's people to start rejoicing in the goodness of God in our lives so that the world sees the goodness of God in us and what he's done for us despite who we are so that they may come to know Jesus Christ who is the ultimate goodness in our life. And the goodness of God in our lives should point to God and bring others as well as ourselves to repentance. So he uses, he uses then those things like the word in our life. He uses godly sorrow over sin in our life. He uses his goodness in our life. And fourthly, he uses chastisement to bring us to repentance. I don't necessarily know if these five things are in order, but they sure seem to work out in this order in my life. I love to study the word. I love to read the Bible and see things in the Bible. God speaks to my heart through. I pray that I'm sorrowful over my sin anytime I commit sin. I, I love to recognize God's goodness in my life. But oftentimes it seems to get to this fourth thing before I really recognize and go to repentance before an almighty God. Wouldn't you like to know that one of the first few ways would work before he ever gets here? To chastisement. I know I do. I know I would love for him to find some other way to get my attention. I think my wife will probably say amen when I say this. I hope she's in the nursery. She's not. <laughs> I can be just a touch on the hard-headed side, and sometimes it takes something dramatic to really get my attention. God knows that about me. He knows that about me. And there's one thing I know that he says about this chastisement that I think we've all experienced at times in our life. In Revelation chapter 3, he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. See, we love to quote, For as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, period. And it's okay. There is a period there. It just doesn't tell you what you're supposed to do with that. The second part of that verse does. Therefore, be zealous and repent. I'm so glad to know that when God chastens me because of my sin, it's because He loves me. It's because He loves me. And I'm also so glad to know that when He chastens me, He does it with a purpose. A purpose designed into that chastening, a desired outcome. He says He chastens me that I might be zealous and Repent. God loves me so much that he will take me to that proverbial woodshed in hopes, in hopes that I will become zealous for him and repent of those sins in my life. And you know, as his child, I'm glad he does it. I'm glad he does it. As his child, I'm glad he loves me enough that he's willing to bring pain in my life at times to draw me back to him. Aren't you glad to know that God loves you so much? That he's willing to walk with you through that pain because he says he'll never leave you or forsake you. When he chastens you and it causes hard times in your life, he promises he's going to be right there with you the entire time. And I'm so glad to know. I'm so glad to know that he loves me. But you know, if you really read that passage in Revelation chapter 3, 
You understand, I don't believe that it just speaks to his children. You may say, well, it says those that he loves. And my question will be, who then does God love? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I ask you again, who is it that God loves? Everyone. Have you ever thought the fact that even those who are not his children run into his chastisement at times? You ever thought that there are things that happen in people's life? And you heard the dramatic experience of people who've had life-altering situations happen in their life and they've come to know Jesus. That may be some of those chastisement things. But you know, I also know people that have had the smallest of things happen in their life that have caused their life to fall apart behind the scenes and nobody knows it. Nobody sees them laid up in a hospital bed, broken up. Nobody sees them getting operated on. But the smallest of things happen in their life, and the world is turned upside down, and it's all done quietly behind the scenes. There's things that happen they have no control over, and they feel like there's no control for life. But even through those smallest of things in their life, God is speaking to them. God is speaking to them. You see, whether we know Jesus as our Lord or Savior or not, I believe God uses chastisement in our life to bring us to repentance, to stop that road that we're traveling away from Him and give us another chance. For His children is to draw you back into the fold, to, to mend that relationship with Him. For those who don't know Jesus at all, that chastisement oftentimes comes right where the road drops off the cliff. And it's, I hate to say, a last-ditch effort because it's not a last-ditch effort on his part, but it's a last-ditch effort on our part before the end of our chances with Jesus. God will oftentimes bring chastisement into our lives to point us towards repentance. And finally, very quickly, God uses the fifth thing, future judgment, to bring us to repentance. Acts 17, we'll get to... In a few weeks, but Acts 17 has a scripture that points directly to this. You'll see some of the wording the same as that passage we've been reading in Acts 3. Acts 17, in the 30 through the 31st verse, it says this, Truly, these times of ignorance God has overlooked. Remember what Peter had said to them in the portico? You did all these things to Jesus, and you did it out of ignorance. Here it said, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now, but now, commands all men everywhere to repent. There's going to come a day you can't say, I didn't know it. There's going to come a day that you're not going to be able to say, I'm ignorant of that. That's why I didn't do it. No, it says, but now God commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. See, Paul, in warning the pagan Athenians, says that God has set a day and a time for judgment. You don't like to hear about judgment we don't like to think about judgment. We don't like to look at God as one who's going to judge. We like to look at him as a God who loves. And he is a God of love. And because he is a God of love, 
there's going to be a day of judgment. For those who reject that love and not accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, there comes a day of judgment. You see, that day is somewhere in the future. Jesus himself spoke of it whenever he said, There is no man that knows the day or the hour but my Father. My Father alone. But there is a day. Jesus said there was a day. He didn't know what day, but he knew there was a day. And I believe that day is fast approaching. That day is closer today than it ever has been. In fact, that day could be today. We never know. We're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised another breath. And he tells them that on that day, God's anointed or ordained or appointed man. Remember the names of Jesus that were given to those standing in the portico? Holy One, Anointed One, the, the righteous or just man, says he will be the judge. Who do you think he's writing to the Athenians about? Jesus. This man that he's just given them the names in chapter 3, the messianic, messianic names, and now he's saying that man, the anointed, set-apart one of God, will be the judge. One day, the anointed one will judge the world. And we have to know this, that judgment won't be by the world's standards. He won't open the laws of the land to decide how to judge. He won't go by the the group thought process or the democratic way or the republican way. He won't, he, he won't go by the loudest voices. He won't go with the largest country. No. That day of judgment will be by God's standard. God's righteous standard. Aren't you glad to know we have a yardstick of that standard? Aren't you glad to know it's not just something that you have to hope that you get there? Aren't you glad to know it's not something that you hope you've done enough good that you meet the standard? Aren't you glad that it's not something that you've given enough money that you meet the standard? Aren't you glad to know that you don't have to wait till the day to find out if you made it? Because we have a yardstick. We have a yardstick with one upright and one cross member. They had three nails driven in it through two hands and two feet. They had a man who hung upon it and spilled his blood for your sins and mine. We have a yardstick. The yardstick has a name. The name is Jesus, the same man who set apart to judge the world, died for your sins and mine. See, when you come before that judge, if you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior, he's going to know your name. He's going to know your name. Because your name is going to be written in the book of life. There will be no need for him to say, depart from me. He will say to you, Come, my good and faithful servant. You see, when you stand before him, he will know your name. Any rational person that understands that there's a day coming, that they will be judged on what they've done with this Jesus, and they've come to know who this Jesus is through the word. They've come to know that their sin is wrong because of the sorrow of their sin. They've come to know that God is great and good because of the goodness in their life. They've come through and experienced the chastisement of God, yet God bringing them through that, whether saved or not. And they face the fact that there is a day of judgment. Any rational person that those things have happened in their life, and they realize there's a day they're going to be judged with what they've done with this Jesus... We'll repent. That's how God uses that. 
and our repentance at future judgment. Peter in his sermons to the Jews and in the portico of Solomon there in Acts 3 tells them the first natural response, the first natural response to understanding their ignorance and the murder of this Jesus and not accepting him as their Messiah should be to repent. Maybe today you realize that in some sense you've been ignorant of who this Jesus is. You've been ignorant of who he is. Maybe you have the knowledge, the knowledge in your head from from years of of Bible study in in Sunday school or or sitting and preaching, or maybe you've read the Bible all of your life, and you have this knowledge in your life, but that knowledge has not led you to repent. Maybe when you sin, your conscience kicks in, and yeah, you're you're sorry you did that, but you're not so sorry you're not going to do it again. Maybe there's a sorrow over the sin, but you're really not sorry because of who you sinned against, and it hasn't led to repentance. Maybe maybe you could just say today, you, I've experienced the goodness of God in my life even when I had my back turned on God, and yet that's never led me to repentance. Maybe today, maybe today you're sitting in the seat, the seat of chastisement in your life. Maybe you're right in the middle of something, and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt this morning that God has put that on you this morning, allowed you to walk through it because you need to repent of something. But maybe it still hasn't led you to repentance. Maybe this morning you recognize the fact that maybe today, but someday very soon, there will be a day of judgment. And at that day, there will be no more chances. There will be no more chances to repent. Maybe today you feel the urgency of that need to repent. You know, God is patient. God is a patient God. God is a good God, and He's patient with us. He will not force you to repent. He will not put strings on you and treat you like a puppet. But He will use these five things to lead you towards repentance. But this good God that won't force you is also a just God that one day will call the note. One day, the opportunity will end. That day could be today. You never know. Would you come to him today in repentance before it's too late? Would you come? Do you realize this morning you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Would you come repenting of your sins, asking for forgiveness and trusting in him as your Lord and Savior? Maybe this morning you're one of his children and you realize sitting in that pew there are a lot of things he's asked you to do that you've said no to. There's a lot of things you've done that he's asked you to do, and you've done it with the wrong heart and the wrong attitude. Both of those things are sin. There's a story I hadn't planned on using. I'm going to use very quickly out of Matthew 21. It's called the parable of two sons. It says, but what do you think? A man, he had two sons. And he came to the first and said, this is a picture of, Two people having the opportunity to stand before the Father. And he said to him, he says, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And the first son answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And that son answered and said, I go, sir. But he didn't. Jesus asked the question, Which of the two did the will 
of his father. The one who was asked and said no, but repented and went. Or the one that was asked and said yes, but didn't. They answered, obviously it's the first. Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlot entered the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent and believe him. I ask you this morning, maybe you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you have no problem saying, you know, I have repented of my sins and asked him to be the Lord of my life. Then I ask you this question. Has Jesus said go? And you said no? Or has Jesus said go? And you said yes and didn't go? Those are just as much a sin as the murder of someone or lying, cheating, or stealing. Repentance starts with us, God's people. So that he can use us to spread the good news to those who have never accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Maybe this morning you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I would ask you to meet me down front. I'd love the opportunity to tell you about that. But for many of you, I know you do wear the name of Christ proudly on your life. Because you know him as Lord and Savior. My question to you is, is there something in your heart that you need to repent of this morning? Is there something that God knows but you're trying to hide it. Would you be willing this morning to come and ask for forgiveness, trusting in the, uh, the fact that He will forgive you of your sins? Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.